Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey, Jim, and hey to everyone who's listening. You know, within the wide breadth of topics that we have covered so far on this podcast, I mean, everything from sexuality to parenting, Christian nationalism to the world of the occult, I am honestly shocked that we have not already talked, at least not in depth anyways, about today's topic. And that is the reality in the realm of angels. And interestingly, regardless of how you might label yourselves in terms of religion or denomination or lack thereof, the belief in angels is a a common belief that nearly all American adults share, at least according to a recent AP poll. Jim, can you share a bit more about that survey? Yeah, I wasn't surprised by it. I mean, I think belief in angels has been consistently high in almost every polling in the history of polling that I've seen. Um, More people believe in angels. And then just about anything else that you would put on a spiritual polling list or supernatural map, more that more people believe in angels than the devil, more people believe in angels than astrology, more people believe in angels in reincarnation, more people believe in angels in hell. Uh, right now, um, this latest poll that you're referring to, uh, right at about seven out of every 10 um, adults in the United States believe in angels. Okay, so I want to dive into that a little bit more because obviously belief in all supernatural figures, places, or concepts is not equal. Um, as you just mentioned that the survey found that, yeah, like you said, more people think believe in angels than hell and the devil and so on. So I'm curious, what is then unique about angels that makes them easier to accept or perhaps something that we would rather believe in? You know, one person interviewed in the article that I think spurned this this podcast idea between us that we had both read was that uh, one person in the article said that for a lot of people, angels are just a lot safer to believe in. And that's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Safer mm-hmm. to believe in. When you think of an angel, you think of something benevolent and helpful and non-judgmental and, and, and non-condemning and uh, something that comes to your rescue or aid in a time of need, a protector. Uh, they're a source of comfort. And they're also just a lot more familiar to us. They're all through the Bible and they're all through popular culture. I mean, some of our favorite movies revolve around angels, movies that portray angels in very comfortable, human-like, reassuring, positive ways. Um, obviously, the classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Heaven Can Wait, um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Uh, Angels in the Outfield <laughs> was a lot of fun. The Preacher's Wife, The Legend of Bagger Vance, on and on it goes. And they also seem safe in terms of theology, uh, at least in popular thinking. You can believe in angels without thinking about a particular faith like Christianity or a particular person like Jesus. Uh, God is in the picture, to be sure. I mean, it's, it would be hard to not kind of have God lurking in the background of angels, but you'd be surprised how often belief in God is not kind of bracketed off, but belief in God is, is, is still up there with angels. In fact, that's the only polling subject that came in higher than angels in terms of belief. Uh, but angels came in along with prayer. They came in along with heaven, uh, both of which are kind of these feel-good concepts. Um, people pretty much believe what they want to believe. 
uh, and feel what they want to feel about angels. Uh, when you start getting into a you know belief, in, you move from belief in angels to a theology of angels, it gets kind of quickly into a hot mess. And um, and people have no trouble fitting those ideas into any number of worldviews, faiths, or ideologies. In fact, I I read that half of all practicing witches, half of all practicing witches believe in angels. And many mediums and others who say they have contact with the supernatural world actually believe they're talking to an angel. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that like feelings about angels to a theology of angels can lead to a hot mess. And I'm not one to really stray away from that. So I think I want to go there because I think to your point, like if everybody believes something different about angels, then really we don't believe anything in particular about them. Like if, if angels can be anything that we want them to be, then then they're nothing and and I don't know. I think that's kind of a way of thinking about it. So I'm interested, I mean, in terms of kind of Christian theology, there we do know things about angels. It's not just whatever you feel like feeling, but rather there there is some guidance there. So now I know entire books have been written about angelology. So I, I know you're not going to be able to cover the whole, um, yeah, the whole range here, but could you at least give us a brief theology lesson on what the Bible tells us about angels? Sure. And, and, and I, I, can, I can really make it fairly simplistic. As I've taught about angels over the years, I've, I've, I've often said there's five basic things uh, that you need to know about angels. And if you're going to have a biblical theology about, about them. First, angels are creatures created by God. Uh, they are not gods themselves or in any way on equal footing with God. Uh, as created beings of God, they have an intelligence. They have a will. They are moral creatures and, like us, can choose to either obey or, or disobey God. Um, second, they're not human. They are spirits. Uh, they don't have physical bodies as we have, though when they interact with humans, they can and often do assume a human form. Uh, a third thing about angels is that they are powerful, far, far more powerful than, than we obviously are. The book of Second Kings in the Old Testament uh, the Bible says that one angel was sent to destroy 185,000 185, Assyrians. One angel was enough. Uh, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about uh, the world being destroyed at the end of time, it is done largely through the power of seven angels as they carry out the commands of God. That's all it took to destroy all of created reality. Seven. <laughs> uh, to destroy the entire known universe. Um, and... Uh, so that's third. Fourth, there's a lot of them. Uh, while we only have the names of a few, uh, most famously Gabriel and Michael, uh, Jesus made reference to being able to call down 12 legions of angels if he needed them. Now that was, you know, um, now a legion, just so you can put that into context, a legion in the Roman army varied from between 3,000 and 6,000 men. So Jesus' uh, reference alluded to anywhere from 30, what, 6,000 to 72,000 angels. Now that was figurative language. I mean, clear, but it still tells us that Jesus understood there to be thousands upon thousands of angels. So the point is, is that there are vast numbers of them. Uh, the book of Hebrews even speaks of thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And in the book, again, in the book of Revelation, when John was um, describing this, this, this vision of heaven at the end of time, uh, he, he saw what he can only describe as thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. I mean, that's just, he just, he, he couldn't come up with numbers big enough for the number of angels he saw. So while we don't know the exact number, we know it's a lot. There's, there's a lot of them. Um, finally, 
the last thing is that there are different kinds of angels. For example, there are angels called cherubim, which seem to be the highest order, maybe not the most powerful, but the highest order. Uh, they're at least the ones that seem to circle the throne of God. And then there are angels called seraphim. And then there are archangels, which do seem to be the most powerful, just raw power archangels. And those, uh, and who knows how many other kinds there are in the Bible. It, when, when, you, when you start looking at what we, the glimpses we have of the supernatural realm, um, it's a highly structured realm and order. Uh, but the most important separation between the angels theologically is this, that there are good angels and there are bad angels. Not all the angels that God created uh, stayed loyal to God. Some rebelled. They lost their place and their holy condition. And now they oppose the work and the will of God. Which is why the Bible, uh, in the Bible, the writer of uh, Jude, the book of Jude says, you know, hey, I, I, I want to make sure that you're remembering, you know, I want to remind you of those angels who were once pure and holy but turned to a life of sin. Uh, and that is what a demon is. And this is something really interesting, a, a basic aspect that and a lot of Christians don't understand. A demon is a fallen angel uh, who chose to rebel. Nothing more, but nothing less. And knowing about the existence of bad angels or demons is important because God says that demons have one and only one purpose, and that is to oppose the work and the will of God, uh, both in this world and in the individual Christian's life. And their main strategy is clear. I mean, there's a lot that they do, but their main strategy is very clear. Their main strategy is deception, to be seen as anything but evil, to be seen as anything but demonic. In fact, their strategy is to try and appear as good angels and good beings and good forces and in order to lead people away from, from God, um, which is why in Second Corinthians, Paul says, you know, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Um, and, and the Bible gives us that litmus test that famous litmus test in uh, first John um, about how to test the spirits in, in fact, and also in Galatians one eight um, where apostle Paul writes that, um, that the test of an angelic being, if you want to, if you feel like you've got an angel on your hands and you want to test an angelic being, whether or not their message is whether or not their message is true to Jesus. Um, and, and first John says again, the exact same thing. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they really are from God, which is, Brings us to Satan. Uh, Satan is known by many names. Uh, the devil, Lucifer, the evil one, um, the tempter, the deceiver, the adversary, uh, the prince of darkness. Uh, the Bible teaches that Satan uh, is a fallen angel. Uh, no more, no less, who chose to enter into rebellion against God. Uh, every indication he's, he was uh, is an archangel or was when in his holy condition an archangel among the most powerful of all the angels on line with Michael, the archangel. And according to the book of Revelation, it's it, you know, and, and, and there are some discussions on this, but it, it seems that um, he led at least a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. Um, and uh, and that is the demonic forces arrayed against us. Hmm. I want to come back to Satan in just a minute, but first, when you were talking about the different kinds of angels, um, I didn't hear you mention anything about guardian angels. Is that because that idea isn't in the Bible? This might surprise you. Um, let's talk about that. Okay. We've talked about what angels are. I gave you kind of like the, the person of angels. Now let's talk about the work of angels. When I teach systematic theology to graduate students, I'll often talk about the person and work of Jesus and the person and work of the Holy Spirit, 
Well, we talked about the person, if you will, of angels, but not the work of angels. So let's talk about that, what they do. According to the Bible, there are at least three uh, broad categories of angelic activity. Uh, first, they praise God. Revelation, John writes of seeing all the angels were all standing around the throne. They fell down on their faces before the throne. They were worshiping God. And uh, I mentioned the cherubim. It's like they're constantly in the presence of God. And you have that scene from Isaiah. You know, they were the angels circling, saying, holy, holy, holy. So there's that, that, that dynamic. Second, they communicate God's message. Uh, they can do it verbally through dreams in all kinds of ways. I mean, angels have communicated God's message in all kinds of ways. In fact, that's what the word angel means. Let's go and get that one out of the way. Uh, angel literally means messenger. And, uh, by, that's, and that's one of their main roles, their task. Uh, the Bible is just full of stories when God sent an angel to communicate his word to one of us on earth. Now, the fact that angels are messengers uh, means that what is important is their message, not themselves as messengers. Uh, they are not to be the focus of attention themselves. In fact, in the book of Revelation, again, we keep going back to Revelation. There's a lot of angelic activity and insight and, and learning from the book of Revelation. But when John was in the presence of an angel being shown the glory of heaven and the picture of, of, of the, what the future would hold, he was so overwhelmed by the, by the angel's supernatural presence and his glory and his power that he wanted to worship the angel. And he fell down at his feet and began to worship the angel. And when he started to do that, the angel was absolutely horrified. Hmm. And, and he said, don't do it. You know, like, like stop. Whoa, you know, no, don't do this. I am, I am just a fellow servant with you and all the brothers and prophets and all of all who keep the book, uh, the words of this book, you know, worship God, not me. Um, now that's a very important point because the danger with all of the attention given to angels and belief in angels is that worship of God does get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. Angels should never replace God in our lives. They're just messengers. They're not the message, much less the source of the message. Um, third, angels, and here we're getting to your question. <laughs> <laughs> the third thing that they do is that angels minister to believers. That is one of their jobs, one of their tasks. The Bible records instances where God has sent angels to guide people, to provide for them, to encourage them, to answer a particular prayer, to, to protect them from harm. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this, uh, extra biblical story, because it's, it's this, this dynamic of the angels is alive and well. One of my favorite stories about this comes from the life of John Payton, who was a, um, a pioneer missionary in the New Hebrides. Uh, islands and um, who one night uh, he tells how uh, hostile natives that he had been trying to reach for Christ surrounded his mission headquarters and they were intent on burning him and his family out you know uh, and killing them and John and his wife prayed all night during that terror-filled evening that God would deliver them from the natives that had surrounded them to to kill them when daylight came, they were amazed to see that not only had they survived the night, but every one of the attackers had, had fled. And a year later, uh, the chief of the tribe ended up giving his life to Christ. And John, remembering what had happened, asked the chief what had kept him alive uh, and what had kept him and his men from you know, burning down the house and, and killing them that night. Uh, and the chief looked surprised. He says, well, well, who are all those men you had there? And John said, there were no men there. It was just me and my wife. 
And the chief said, no, no. There were many men there standing guard, hundreds of men and shining, huge men in these shining garments. And they had these drawn swords in their hands and they circled the entire mission station and uh, so that we were terrified and we were afraid to attack. So we fled. And both men agreed it could only have been angels. Now, this raises, again, a question that a lot of people have. Does every Christian have their own guardian angel? And the most biblical answer you can give is, we don't know. Hmm. We don't know. Uh, it's a commonly held belief among people, but the Bible doesn't really talk about it. But we do know that collectively, angels watch over the followers of God. We do know that. I love that Peyton story. That gives me goosebumps every time I hear that one. Thank you. Yeah, I have told you that before. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. I can hear it a million times. Um, I wanted to circle back real quick just before I move on to some of my other questions. Um, Because you did, as you mentioned, Satan is an angel. He is a fallen angel. In light of this conversation, is there anything else that maybe we should know specifically about him? Yeah. I think there is. We could do an entire podcast just on him. Hmm. Uh, Satan is known by many names. As I mentioned, the devil, the Lucifer, uh, the evil one, the tempter, deceiver, adversary, prince of darkness. The Bible teaches he is a fallen angel, as I mentioned, and he chose to enter in rebellion, probably an archangel, and led up to a third of the angels with him. The heart of the fall, whereas compare and contrast, the angel that John encountered in Revelation, John bowed down before him, the angel said, don't do it. What drove Satan was, oh, I want you to do it. (laughs) It really was. You know, he wanted God's place. He wanted that worship. The heart of this fall was pride, uh, according to the prophet Isaiah's description. Uh, He wanted to sit where God sits. Now, now, if you believe Isaiah's description applies to Satan, which traditionally most do. Now, as an angel, even if an archangel, there's a few things worth remembering about him. He's not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He's not God. He's not even close to being God. He's not the evil twin brother of Jesus. This isn't like a Thor, Loki thing. Uh, The Bible says is that he is an angel who fell. Uh, So don't fall prey to, uh, in philosophy circles, what would be a dualist view. Uh, Don't fall prey to a dualist view of good and evil that has good and evil being equal. uh, Or Satan being as powerful as God. Uh, That's not at all the state of things. The Bible says that Satan gave in to pride, wanted to sit where God sits. He rebelled against God, declared all-out war. The Bible does not go into detail as to why God allowed Satan to be in opposition to him. All we know is that God allowed him to exercise his free will and to be in rebellion, just as he allowed us to exercise our free will and make our choices. Um, But he's to be taken very, very seriously. Um, And if you have any doubt about that, just look at what Jesus had to say about him um, because Jesus believed in him and took him very, very seriously. He did not think he was a myth. He did not think he was a figment of someone's imagination. He didn't think he was some cartoon character with a you know, red suit and pointed tail. He didn't think he was a mere projection of our minds in order to try and explain away the mysteries of evil. Uh, Jesus believed him and knew him to be a real live spiritual being. Uh, he took Satan seriously. He wanted his followers to take him seriously, not just take him seriously, but Jesus went out of his way to teach about Satan. It was interesting. He taught about him. And here are some of the things that Jesus specifically wanted his followers to know about Satan. First, he says, you need to know that he's a murderer. 
he didn't think the devil was cute. He didn't think he was just a little bit naughty. He said Satan is a being who's, who is totally evil and malicious, someone who kills and destroys, someone who is absolutely and totally opposed to God and all that is of God, a murderer. And Jesus added, and he's been a murderer from the beginning. Hmm. Uh, and that was more than likely a reference to the Garden of Eden. Uh, where he led Adam and Eve in rebellion against God. He knew that the rebellion would lead to spiritual death, uh, to separation from God, and he was so intent on doing that. He wanted them dead. And no sooner had he done that than he worked to work on inciting uh, physical murder as well between their sons, Cain and Abel. And he's been on a murderous rampage ever since. He celebrates every single life that is um, gets to the grave, divorced from a saving relationship with Christ, and faces an eternity in hell. That's his win. Hmm. Second, Jesus called him uh, a liar. Uh, very specifically, a liar. And he, he added, and a, the father of lies. Uh, that's where we get our word devil. It's from the Greek word diabolos, uh, which means slanderer. Uh, someone who spreads lies and half-truths about someone or something in order to get them to think wrong things. And the word Satan literally means accuser or the one who accuses. Again, who brings hostile, false accusations against someone else. So built into his name is this idea of lying and deceit. Jesus said that Satan is destructive, a malicious, evil liar whose lying is designed to tear down, attack, and destroy the reputation of truth. And his biggest lie uh, that he consistently spreads from the Garden of Eden to this very day is that bad is good, that wrong is right, that what is false is true, that what is harmful is healthy, that what is immoral is moral, that what is cruel is kind, that what is unjust is somehow just, that in choosing to sin, to go against God, to live apart from God, um, is best, virtuous, logical, rational, smart. As he said to Eve, oh, you won't die. You'll just get all this stuff, you know, mm -hmm. eat the apple, eat the apple. Mm -hmm. um, the third thing that Jesus said about Satan is that he's a destroyer. Uh, he wants to keep everyone away from the life that comes through receiving the truth of God's message through Christ. And if somebody does hear the message of Christ and and, and the, the parable that Jesus told of the, the seed scattered on the various types of soil and land, ground is totally a parable about Satan. Um, if they do get a solid dose of spiritual truth, um, his number one goal is to try to snatch it away, to do anything possible to try to get them to reject it or dismiss it. He wants to steal it from their hearts. And if he can't do that, if he can't get them to just walk away from it, then he'll just try to make sure they don't do anything with it, um, that they don't ever take it very seriously. And they just become, at best, armchair casual believers. So Jesus said that Satan is real, that he is a murderer, that he is a liar. But the last thing and the most important thing, really, is that he's defeated. Hmm. He's defeated. Um, and uh, it was Christ's death on the cross that did that. Uh, again, Satan wants each and every person to be separated from God, to die separated from God and unforgiven for their sins. That's how he achieves the murder. Uh, he wants them to face the full penalty. And he felt that if he could get the human race to fall into sin, that he won. From then on, it was just over. He, he, had, he had no sense of, of the sacrifice Jesus would make on the cross. You know, as, as Lewis wrote in Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, he didn't know. The white witch didn't know of the deeper magic. Hmm of what it would happen if Aslan died, but he wants them in hell. And that's the depth of his hatred. 
but by his death and resurrection, obviously Jesus conquered the power of Satan over sin and death and hell. And at the end of time, when Jesus returns, uh, Satan will be judged along with everybody else. The victory will be complete. And But in, in between the now and the not yet, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, the God of this world. And he's defeated, but he is still loose. I thought you said talking about angels was supposed to feel safe. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I mean, this is where that theology... I mean, yeah. Um, okay, well, you mentioned earlier that we're not supposed to worship angels, but that they could also perhaps care for our needs. So what type of interaction are we supposed to have with angels, if any type of interaction? Around? Yeah, I mean, we're not to pray to them or anything like that. I mean, biblically, you don't find you don't find a single case in Scripture of a human being trying to seek them out or communicate with them. Not one. Hmm. Uh, they show up to do God's bidding or communicate a message. I mean, you can certainly pray to God for anything you want. You know, you know, you know, God help me in any way I need, send angels, do whatever. I mean, you can pray to God the Father in any way you want, but not praying to an angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they show up to do God's bidding and or to communicate a message, and we're on the receiving end of that. And again, the communication of God's uh, message through angels largely seems to have ended with the closing of the canon of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, messages. Mm-hmm. Revelation is complete, and you really don't see the messenger activity of angels after that. Um, you do see their intervention, and you do see their protective work, but not so much communication. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why we need to be really clear uh, that people in the world of the occult who say that they are in contact with an angel, or who they say uh, an angel gave them a message, and that message, you read it, and it's clearly, or maybe it's more subtle, but it's intention with the Christian faith. Um, they, I, I would say, okay, uh, you are in contact with an angel. It just happens to be a fallen one, mm-hmm. a demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't stress enough uh, that if anyone says they're talking to an angel, that an angel is communicating with them, giving them new truths, new spiritual insights for a new day, that is a demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, what is being said might seem benign, might even seem innocent, First, the Bible says he positions himself as an angel of light, but then the evil engulfs you. And it's even more than playing with fire. Uh, it's dousing yourself with gasoline and then lighting the match. Uh, we talk of possession and oppression and attack and opposition and affliction and, and warfare. Well, this is how it starts. Any engagement of the occult is, is spiritual suicide. And nothing could be more terrifying. Hmm. While we're on the topic of angels, I just wanted to bring up this commonly held belief. I mean, I even had this belief when I was, at least when I was a child, that when you die, you will become an angel. Like that's a very common thing to hear. Like, oh, you know, such and such is an angel now, or you're going to get wings or whatever. But it doesn't seem like based on what you've just described that that is actually true. No, it's not true at all. It's not even, I mean, it's, 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 it's simply false. I mean, you know, I, I can be swift and to the point on that one biblically. It's a comforting thought, as you mentioned to a lot of people, that dece- particularly deceased loved ones become angels who then watch over us. Right. And 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 I've heard even Christians say, oh, "Yeah, they're an angel now, looking out for me." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that's that's nowhere in, in the Bible. 
And while we do have angels watching over us as believers, they are not our deceased loved ones. When we die, we have resurrected bodies like Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. Uh, and we are in paradise, but we are not angels. Uh, they are creatures separate from us. In fact, the Bible says that those of us in Christ will actually, at the end of time, be the ones who judge the angels. Hmm. Oh. Okay, well, I kind of want to bring this all together by talking about you know, what we do with all of this, because I've heard you say before, talking about Satan in particular, that we can have two opposite but equally unhealthy views about him, like either giving him too much of our attention and living in constant fear or dismissing him altogether and not giving him enough credit. So what would you say would characterize a healthy interest in angels? Yeah, and that kind of either or is not original with me. It comes from the preface to the Screwtape Letters by um, C.S. Lewis. Um, which is one of the most intriguing books that you'll ever read. It's a fictitious record of a series of letters between a junior devil uh, from a highly organized hell. And um, that's, I mean, it, a senior devil from a highly organized hell named Screwtape to uh, his nephew, Wormtongue, who's a junior devil in regard to the art of winning over a young man's soul, often called his patient on earth. And in one of those letters, Wormwood wants to know if he should keep his patient in ignorance of his existence. You know, should I keep him in the dark? Do I let him know, you know? And Screwtape writes back and says, oh, no, 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 no. Our policy, at least for right now, is to conceal ourselves. And then in a later letter, Screwtape writes Wormwood about why that's the best policy. And he says, it's because you want to try to lead the human to make small steps away from God, uh, to begin to believe small lies, to not suspect that there's really demonic evil behind all this. Just get him to small steps away, as opposed to leading the person to spectacular wickedness all at once, which may all too easily be seen as truly evil, and then they turn from it. And then uh, there, the, there's a famous line, at least to me, it stood out and it was highlighted in my readings of it. Uh, the senior demon screw tape says that the safest road to hell is the one, is the gradual one. Uh, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, uh, without sudden turnings, no milestones, no signposts. Hmm. Anyway, the book is worth a read. And um, World War I looms large in it, but that is because it was written while that terror was taking place. Uh, but the spiritual insights are timeless. But a, a healthy interest in angels um, can still be there. A healthy interest, though, would have these two dynamics. Uh, first, that they can minister to you. That's a great, healthy interest in them. They can be agents of God's ministry to you. They can show and demonstrate God's care for you. They can be God's hands for you when you need them. Um, uh, Hebrews comes right out and says, angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who are saved. The Bible teaches that they throw a party when somebody becomes a Christian, and then they seek to serve and support our efforts to follow God throughout our Christian life. And then according to a story that Jesus told about a man named Lazarus, when we die, the angels come and carry us home. Um, second, they are actively engaged in pointing us toward God. They are messengers, and the message they bring can be life-changing uh, for those who will listen to it. Again, their message is largely contained for us now in the scriptures, but you can go back through the scriptures and be ministered to by the messages that the angels brought. For example, in the story of Jesus' birth, the message of the angel is the most important one of all. You know, today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. You know, we sing that, <coughs> we, we have that 
shape our lives. And that is a ministry of direct angelic communication. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. I think our our listeners will too, because as we mentioned, there's a lot of misinformation out there about angels or really just a lack of any information about this. So hopefully this was in some ways sobering and other ways encouraging, but at least that's how I took it. So thank you, Jim. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you tune in again next week.